Welcome back, Rigo Garcia. We've had a couple of interviews together, always very informative and enjoyable. So people out there, if you haven't listened to those, please go back and listen to those. You will not be sorry that you took the time to do that. Today, Rigo, I wanna talk about something you mentioned. I believe it was maybe in the first interview that we had, maybe the second one, but you talked about doing surveys when you go into facilities, that you always give the facility a survey and it's kind of surprising some of the things that, that you find. So I'd like to know a little bit more about that. I mean, in my experience, I find that, and, and it's a different kind of, and it's not really a survey, it's just as I have conversations with people, they don't really seem to be educated on diversion, that diversion exists, they don't think it's important. You've mentioned a couple of times where that they they know it. You, you have found that they know it's there and something needs to be done. So that doesn't really match with the little bit of anecdotal stuff that I have seen. So I'm just really curious to hear a little bit more about those surveys and what you're finding. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we send out these surveys when we go into these hospital systems and um, generally the same questions, but we send them to different groups. So we send them to like the, the C-level, executive level, then we send them to the mid-level, you know, these are the managers, the shift workers, the shift managers, and then we send them to the employees. And the employees include everybody from the medical employees, like the nurses and even the housekeepers. So the the 90% number keeps popping up every time in different, different references. One of them I always find is the most interesting. I've seen this report done a couple times uh, over on a, on a much larger sample size scale, but we will ask the executive level, how many of you think that there's a problem with diversion? And 90%, yeah, it happens, we know it happens. How many of you think that there's a problem with diversion at your facility? 30%, so they all know it's a problem. Everybody knows it's a problem, generally speaking, but nobody is really sure that it's happening there at their facility. Not in my house, it don't. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly because, you know, we have this automated, this, we have this reporting and we're watching it and we're doing this. So when it's only focused on one of those four pillars that we have mentioned, when it's only focused on we're going to catch it, we're going to catch it, we're going to catch it, um, there's a lot of room for loopholes there. So yeah, that one is always the most interesting result because it's so consistent. They all know there's a problem, but it's not in my house. Well, they're uh, not catching it, so they think it's not in their house. Yes, we haven't caught any. We haven't had anybody for right. six months, so it can't be in my house. That's a, that's yeah. an excellent point, and it's very insightful because uh, that's why they think that they don't have a problem because they haven't caught it, right? So then the second 90% we see is how many of you feel that diversion happens at your facility and with the employees? So have you worked with somebody? Have you experienced it? And it's, it's a little bit more than do you think it happens is have you witnessed it? Have you okay. seen somebody impaired? Have you worked with somebody impaired or have you practiced impaired? 90% say yes. Overwhelmingly. And it's, it's, so when you're asking the employees at the, you know, at the bottom of that hierarchy, the bottom of the food chain, you ask the, the worker bees, they all know what's going on, but they don't have the power to do something about it, or they haven't been empowered to do something about it necessarily. But that's where all of the information is located with the, with the, with the worker bees. They see it day-to-day -day happening. And then the other 90% is how many of you feel like you are not getting enough education or preventative measures or insight or training on identifying diversion? And it's 90% feel like we're not getting anything. So... Here you see the whole picture of those three questions. 
we think that there's a problem, but not at our place. Well, what are you talking about? It's everywhere at our place. Oh, and by the way, we're not getting enough information and education on what to do when it happens to us here at the worker level. So those that information has been so consistent, no matter if we're in the Midwest or the West Coast, or if we're at a surgical center or at a hospital system, it's always the same general responses to those questions. Always fascinating. Yeah, interesting. So if 90% of the frontline workers have worked with somebody and have seen it, but they say they're not getting enough education, do you think they're referring, they must not be referring to how to identify it if they've seen it. Are they referring more to what do I do if I see it? That's exactly what they're referring to. What do I do? Because if it's me, I'm not going to ask for help because I saw what they did to the last three guys that they caught. So I'm not definitely going to ask for help. And you know what? In my case, in my case in particular, I like Rigo. Rigo's a nice guy. He has a family. He has kids. If I tell him he could go to jail, I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to bury my head in the, I'm not sure if it's really. Yeah, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong and what is that going to, you know, he isn't, he's the chief anesthetist. He's in charge. He has some pool here and, you know, I don't want to do that to his family or his kids. So it's a lot of different reasons why from uh, I don't want to get involved to what if I'm wrong to uh, I don't want to get him in trouble or I like him or I'm afraid of him. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why they don't want to get involved. Should I confront him myself or should I tell somebody else? And then who should I tell? So there's there's a lot of disparity with those options. Um, and if that doesn't get tightened up with the hospitals, then you're going to have the co-worker saying, I have 15 different options. None of them sound good. What do I do? And it'd be nice to say, if you have it, hand it off to this person. Here's the expert. He knows what to do. He'll take care of it. Interesting. Do you have any feel for those people that are are knowing that their coworkers are are diverting or working while impaired? Obviously, that that sets the whole team up for a problem, right? Because you're depending on that coworker to, you know, break you, relieve you, whatever, hand off to you, give you a good handoff report. Do you have any feel for how those peers that are watching this happen and letting it continue to happen deal with that whole thing? Yeah. I mean, they have to be hyper vigilant when they're around that person, obviously. So, yeah, Terry, that's a fantastic question because what we have seen time and time again, and it's and it's something uh, that, that that wouldn't pop up on the radar unless you were looking for it. But the amount of undue stress that is on that coworker in all aspects, I have to be hyper vigilant with my patients because this guy may come in and divert my medications. Uh, I have to come in and babysit and make sure that this guy doesn't overdose in the bathroom. Um, if I say something, what if I'm wrong and everybody is mad at me and nobody wants to work with me or talk to me again? So the amount of stress, hey, I'm just trying to come to work to do my job and I got to babysit this guy over here who I think is impaired and protect my patient. The stress and the mental anguish that it causes the coworkers is unparalleled to anything else that I've seen. It's, it's if you put the signs and symptoms and um, the effects of PTSD, it's like a, it's a PTSD situation that they're going through and they take this home with them and it wears on their psyche and it changes their cortisol levels. And um, they have physical implications sometimes, physical health implications sometimes from harboring this secret or this situation 
for a long time. So a uh, long way to answer the question of it, it, it plays, it wreaks havoc on the mental health of the coworker when they are tasked with figure this out on your own, or they think they have to figure this out on their own with real life or death implications if they get this wrong. Interesting. Yeah. Until now, I had never really thought about that. I mean, I think of the the safety impact for the team, the medical team, obviously, but I haven't thought about that piece of it. I wonder if there's more sick calls too surrounding that. You look at it like, oh, I'm working with Joe today. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. I can't handle that today. Absolutely. I, I can tell you, I'll share this and then I'm going to share this in my personal experience. Uh, some of the co-workers were kind of, uh, you know, catching wind. And this is very simple on the surface, but cumulatively over time, it wears on them. And I would go in and they'd say, hey, I'd like to give you, you know, your lunch break. And they said, no, I'm not taking a lunch. So not taking a lunch because of fear of, you know, patients or diversion or whatever. So, you know, you already have a 12 hour workday and now yeah. you're voluntarily eliminating your lunch in the sake of patient interest. Yeah. Cause I'm not going to let you take my patient while I go to lunch. Exactly. So you try to go to work, Terry, for 40 hours a week and never take a lunch. That's going to wear on you over time very quickly. Wow. Interesting. Well, and an astute manager, if they know what they're looking for, that's something yeah. that they could also pick up on as well. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's multifaceted for, for certain. It's not an easy uh, solution or workaround with all these things. Uh, that's why we say it's really crucially important. One of the big things that we recommend for hospitals when you have, first of all, get a diversion response team. Get a group of like-minded individuals that is multi-focused. Maybe you have a pharmacist, maybe you have a nurse, maybe you have uh, an administrator, a human resources, an EAP on this team that can review these cases. And I would say about 60% of hospitals have some form of what they would call a diversion response team that we can then further mold and maybe put on a consistent schedule. But this is the one factor that almost every one of them is missing. Somebody like me on their team. Somebody on that diversion response team that has done it before. Somebody that can be the, the voice and the perspective of this is all good, but this is the reality of it. This is the thought process of the impaired provider. This is the thought process of the addict. So bringing that perspective to the diversion response team will enhance that experience and that effectiveness for the entire team. So if a hospital wanted to do something like that, they would need to find somebody obviously licensed in their state and you have more than just Indiana licenses, I'm sure coming through your facility, but do you have, and, and you don't have to you know, list them out, but do you have a list of facilities that you are comfortable and confident with that if they have assessed these people and they say they're ready for reintegration, that they would be solid hires to Absolutely. a facility? Okay. Absolutely, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt. And, and uh, I don't know my answer to that, because here's the answer. Assessing them for re-entry should start with their treatment providers and their monitoring providers. And when the institutions in the hospital says, um, Parkdale, you tell me when he's ready to come back from a mental health state point of view. Uh, state of Indiana, you tell me when he's ready to come back in terms of a compliancy point of view. Then we can do the very simple checkoff task list of how do we rehire them. So when the, when the employer or the hospital Way, uh, takes the, the consideration of the treatment aspect and the recovery aspect, and then the monitoring and accountability aspect, then they're going to enhance their, the likelihood tremendously that they're going to get a safe provider to re-answer. Okay, fantastic. So switching topics here a little bit, let's talk about COVID 
and some of the ramifications that you're seeing. Have you seen your admission rates to your clinic increase? Are they different, different kind of people, different triggers? What are you seeing? Well, that's that's uh, that's an answer to that question. It's probably going to keep changing because it keeps evolving. We're, we're we're collecting information almost monthly, and the, the demographic of the people we're treating and the situations we're treating continue to change monthly. And there's a lot of reasons that we're figuring out why. So I'll explain it to you like this: the profile of that impaired healthcare provider that used to come to us back in 2019 or 2020 was something like this. Uh, I had a history of uh, depression, anxiety, maybe some PTSD, maybe some childhood trauma that I experienced. Uh, I had a surgery and that kind of set things off. I got a prescription that set things off and I started diverting from the hospital. I've been doing it for three to six months. That was our typical patient profile, some mental health, a precipitating event, duration of time for diversion, three to six months. Now we're seeing uh, my depression is worse than it's ever been. My anxiety is worse than it's ever been. I've been diverting for a year and a half. I'm um, more addicted and more withdrawn and more shame-based than I've ever been. And um, I overdosed in the bathroom at work. So the acuity of it, the duration of it, the significance of their mental health and their, their diversion is much more profound today than it was a year ago. And here's the reason why. Remember what happened in 2020 in March when we said we're shutting everything down and then April and then May and then the sick patients started coming in. It was all hands on deck. It was everyone's doing double time. If you're in retirement, come on back out. If you don't have a license to practice in our state, we'll give you a temporary license. Come on in. Let's do this. Nobody's watching with detail like they were before, mental health, anxiety, diversion, charts that are not being filled out correctly, waste medication that's not being administered correctly. So we kind of took our eye off of the early identification portion of it and people were getting away with it for much, much, much longer. And here we are. Now we're opening up the country again. We're getting back to the task. I talk to pharmacists all the time where, hey, I'm going through six months, the last six months, because I had to turn my attention. And I'm catching people that were doing this six, nine, 10 months ago, and I'm just catching them now for that reason. Hence the reason why we're seeing people that have been diverting for a year and a half now, because we haven't been looking as astutely as we have over the course of time. So that's probably the most tangible difference that we have seen is that character profile of what they look like today as opposed to COVID. So here's another thing that uh, healthcare professionals have to deal with now. And, and we saw this happen already. There's, a, there's already a fantastic... Um, example of this post 9-11. So if you remember those tragic events of 9-11, uh, the, the firemen and the police officers and all those brave first responders were rushing into the building. And then over the course of the next couple of years, they were getting sick. But I remember the immediate aftermath of that. We couldn't um, exalt our first responders enough. They were heroes in their own right. They were fantastic in their own right. But then the country got back together and we didn't talk about them. They weren't on the front page of the paper like they maybe should have been. And I've heard this from numerous healthcare professionals. That cape that they pinned on me was very heavy to wear. It gets really heavy to wear that cape because you have to take the cape off to ask for help. That's what they think. And we have done the exact same thing with our healthcare providers. We've put these capes on them. We've given them these ribbons and put them on a pedestal. 
and said, you have saved us through COVID. You have um, selflessly given of yourself to make sure that we're safe and we're alive. And what it's done to them in their psyche, and I've seen this with almost every patient that's come through the treatment program, I couldn't ask for help. They needed me at work. I couldn't ask for help. My patients are dying of COVID. I couldn't ask for help. People expected me to be Superman, superwoman, super nurse, super doctor, super pharmacist. So pinning these cape on these healthcare providers, we're, we're just now starting to see the outcome of that. And uh, suicide is up, depression is up, anxiety is up, divorce is up, bankruptcy is up, addiction is up. Uh, alcoholism is up. All of these things are just starting now. And then to answer your point, uh, we have probably increased our capacity by 30% of our staff just to accommodate this influx. Maybe one of the only industries during COVID that has actually uh, grown is the mental health segment. Wow. Wow. That's sad. Do you find that the longer somebody has been abusing substances, the harder it is for a successful recovery? So, you know, that's a, that's a good question as well. And um, just, of course, based off of the experiences, this is almost kind of the opposite of what we see. The longer they've been using, the further the fall from grace, the deeper the rock bottom, and the better they end up doing. So... You catch them early, you give them a slap on the wrist. They think, ah, I was only using it for two or three weeks. We get them back through treatment. We get them back in. It doesn't hurt enough. It doesn't sting enough. But our folks, by and large, do better when they have been, they have the most consequences and it's hurt the most. So okay. I'm not advocating by any chance, so by any means. Wait say, longer. Yeah, come on, you're, you're putting together still. Come back in tomorrow. I'm for that. But our folks that have hit that rock bottom and they come in completely willingness, willing, and they say, I've tried to figure it out. I can't do it. I've lost everything. Help me. What do I do? I'll do whatever you say. The folks that do that and they follow that regimen that we've talked about before, they get detox, they get treatment, they get monitoring, they get accountability, they take time off work, they pay restitution, they face their the, the, the music, they by far do better. Interesting, because almost it would seem to me that I would be more leery of somebody that had a longer addiction problem, God help, sure. thinking that they would relapse easier than the person who didn't do it for as long, who would be easier <clears throat> to get into 100% recovery. So, you know, those of us that, that have no experience in it, some of the things that we're thinking that make sense in reality don't necessarily make sense. They're, they're not reality. So that's kind of interesting. So I'll give you, I'll give you maybe uh, an example. I mean, because we, we, we talk about it and we teach about it and we, we say, hey, the addiction community, the addiction disease is a disease process. It's a primary disease as a prognosis, a diagnosis, a treatment plan, just like any other disease. So if you said, hey, I haven't been feeling well for a long time and I'm not sure what's right. And you see me here and I'm, I look healthy and I'm in shape and I go to the doctor and they say, you know what? We just diagnosed you with diabetes. Um, you really got to watch your diet. And I said, I don't feel like I have diabetes. I feel pretty healthy. I feel pretty good. Well, we're going to need to change your diet and exercise and watch your carbs and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Maybe I'll have that. But I haven't been feeling well for a year. I went into surgery and they had to amputate my foot. I got this heel that won't heal on the backside of my leg. And I'm losing weight and I get headaches and I don't know what's wrong with me. And I'm getting depressed. 
Or you got diabetes. All you got to do is exercise a little bit and take some insulin and change your diet up. Much more motivated. Much more motivated to change because you've seen right. things. Yeah, so you made your point. Good. That's a good analogy. Very good. Thank you for that education on that. Wow. Fascinating. So much that we could talk about and continue to talk about. I do want to thank you very much for your time. I know you're extremely busy, especially with your increase in your uh, people. But I also want to thank you for everything that you're doing for, for professionals in general, but healthcare professionals specifically. We need more places like yours out there, places that really understand what they're going through and are really committed to to helping them through this and to reintegrating them get you know the talent and the skills that that we lose through all of this it's a shame to not get them back so thank you rigo for all that you do thank you thank you for the opportunity to share thank you for the platform i appreciate the work that you do much more than you probably will ever realize but thank you for your time this morning as well i really enjoy speaking with you thank you rigo